Let's pray together. Our God, we are grateful for this day that you've given to us. It's a day that matters. It's a day that uh, we can find blessing and encouragement. It's a day that we can find truth and most of all find Jesus Christ in the midst of a life that is often difficult to make sense of. And so we pray, O oh Lord, that your word would be real to us this morning, that it might prove to um, feel like life for us, even when often these kinds of things feel rote and dead. Would you uh, bring illumination to your scriptures this morning for us? We might find encouragement in it in real life this morning. And help us with all of this. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. While studying in Iowa in 1946, the famous writer uh, Flannery O'Connor began keeping a journal with a series of entries she wrote to God. And so I want you to hear some of these words that she penned, and maybe it might resonate with you uh, today. I dread, O Lord, losing my faith. My mind is not strong. It is prey to all sorts of intellectual quackery. I do not want it to be fear which keeps me in the church. I don't want to be a coward staying with you because I fear hell. Hell just seems a great deal more feasible to my weak mind than heaven. No doubt because hell is a more earthy seeming thing. The point is this. I don't want to fear to be out. I want to love to be in. I don't want to just believe in hell, but I want to believe in heaven. Stating this does me no good. It is a matter of the gift of grace. So help me to feel that I will give up everything earthly for this. Uh, when you read O'Connor, uh, her writings, her poems, her short stories, um, it's not hard to feel some offense by her words, especially if you are a Christian. Right? It's easy to be offended by her words because whether in her private writings or in the things that she's penned in, in books, there is a dissonance between the truth that you are supposed to believe and what it actually means uh, for how it changes your life. When you read O'Connor, you're supposed to believe something, but the way that you actually feel feels different. Uh, in her writing, she invites you into the ugliness, the mystery of life, the heartache of it, and yet she doesn't feel the need to, to resolve it. Right? She doesn't come up with a solution to manage it or to reduce it. Uh, and yet, as you read O'Connor, as one person has commented, there is a kind of comfort in finally facing the truth about yourself. This person goes on to say, that's what happens in every one of O'Connor's stories. In a moment of extreme distress, a character finally comes to see the truth of his situation. He is accountable to a great God who is the source of all. He inhabits mysteries that are too great for him. And for the first time, there is hope, even if he doesn't fully understand it yet. The physical world, even at its seediest and ugliest, is a place where grace still does work. In fact, it is exactly the place where grace does its work. As we've spent the past few weeks in the book of Ecclesiastes, as I've spoken to some of you even in how it's been for you, and I've reflected how it's been for me, hearing this gloomy preacher of Ecclesiastes, it's been weighty, it's been heavy. 
I think we have felt some of the work of grace that even this commenter has uh, made, right? This work of grace that is unseen, it's almost surprising some of what has happened, where we are hearing some really hard things about life that really push up uh, us up against a wall, and we really don't know where to go from there. But perhaps surprisingly, it's also been a healing and freeing time to let you wrestle honestly with life. And perhaps this is the first time you've let yourself even ask some of these questions. And if you're just hopping into Seven Mile Road today on a whim, we've been in Ecclesiastes for a few weeks, and perhaps the reason the room feels somber is because Ecclesiastes has been feeling heavy on our hearts. And this book has a way of doing that. No joke, I remember a few weeks ago we were preaching from Ecclesiastes 3. And I was sitting back in the corner there, and all I wanted to do was just lie down. I wanted to lie down. And I wanted to listen, but a, a pillow and, and a nice bed sheet would have been nice because it was just exhausting to listen to these words. And I want to hear, and I feel, I feel something happening in my heart, but yet you get tired and you get exhausted in what you are hearing. Have you felt that? Am I the only one who has felt like you've run a marathon after hearing Ecclesiastes on Sunday? It's weighty. You know, religion, our, our belief in God, is supposed to be where we should find the answers to life's questions. Uh, but what do you do when religion or God seems like the most puzzling thing about life? What do you do when you wake up one morning and everything you profess to believe seems so far away from what you actually experience and feel in your heart? Or, maybe if you're a Christian, you even know the right answers and your theology is precise, and you're preaching the gospel to your heart. But it just doesn't do enough, and it doesn't do anything for your heart or your belief. The preacher of Ecclesiastes has already shed light on the meaningless of, meaninglessness of wisdom and of work and of pleasure and riches under the sun. And now in chapter 5, the preacher turns our attention to find meaning in religion. And I'm sure as the preacher goes, you can guess by now, the preacher shows us the foolishness and vanity in this as well. Right? He shows us the vanity and the foolishness in this. And you may think to yourself, come on, preacher, please don't take that from us too. I mean, where else would we go if we didn't have religion? Don't make that meaningless for us too. Uh, but I think if we hear the preacher right this morning, we will find an oasis here. We'll find something different here because the preacher is going to unpack for us how to approach God and consider the religious life when we are in the desert of life. Right? In this chapter, the preacher is going to take a break from lamenting everything about the universe. For a moment, he's going to take a break from that, and it's almost as if he's going to be holding up a sign saying, This way to water. You are in the desert, this way to water. So would you turn with me to your Bibles, to Ecclesiastes 5 again. It's on page 555 on the black Bibles in front of you. Turn with me there, and I want to read this passage once more as Amy has read it for us already. So Ecclesiastes 5, um, verses 1 through 7. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. 
To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know what they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should vow, not vow, than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one that you must fear. Uh, As with the rest of the book of Ecclesiastes, the preacher rattles off a bunch of words within, within a few verses. Uh, But the tone of this uh, passage that the preacher has for us is a little different. Uh, This section feels more like instruction than just a commentary on life, right? If you read some of these words, it has more of an instructive tone than just his opinions or commentary on what he sees. He's trying to tell his readers, the people of Israel, how to approach God, how to come before God. Specifically, he has in mind how to come to the temple where God is to worship. That's what he has in mind when he is speaking. He is talking to a religious people about religious life. And so, he's talking to most of us here today. And we can identify somewhat with the context that Solomon is speaking to, even though we're a few thousand years removed. It's not an unusual thing, even as we consider religion, right? It's not an unusual thing for people to turn to religion to find meaning. That's a viable place for us to go, right? When life feels out of control, when we face suffering, when relationships are a letdown, when work feels really hard and unsatisfying, when the nest is empty and the future is uncertain, when you hit middle age, right, or when you read the morning newspaper, you read of disasters and crime and and death and all kinds of disasters, or even when you have arrived at a dream fulfilled, right, when you've arrived at a dream fulfilled, one that you have been working towards for so long, that provided you the energy to wake up in the morning and and get at it again, when you finally have arrived there, where do you go? You know, our eagles have been doing really well. Our eagles have been doing really well. I didn't have to bring this up. I just wanted to talk about the record. And I so badly wanted to wear my Brian Dawkins jersey this morning, but I knew that there are Dallas Cowboys fans and Giants fans mourning with us this morning over the horrible season they're having. So I will be gracious. But, you know, I have this uneasy feeling, and I'm even scared saying this. I have this uneasy feeling that what if we actually make it? What if we get there? What if we make it to the big game? I'm not even going to say the name because I don't want to jinx anything. (laughs) But what if we actually make it there? All we've known as Eagles fans for decades has been the anticipation of getting there and making it, right? Past that. That's all we've known. And if we do make it, it will be glorious. No doubt it'll be amazing. The city will explode and implode. It will be amazing. It'll be wonderful. But I think it'll also be very fleeting. 
very fleeting. And we've talked about football references already a lot in Ecclesiastes. But I think even as we consider for us, as fans, man, that would be an amazing thing. But how quickly will that feeling of accomplishment flee us? Right? Maybe church pews will be filling the following Sunday as people try to fill in the void for something else beyond football. Right? What do you do on a Sunday after that? What do you have to look forward to? Beyond a career, beyond money, beyond relationships, beyond adventure, beyond these things that we look for, honestly, just to satisfy us, where do we go? So religion, I think, can seem like a viable place for us to go, a natural place for us to find meaning in life, right? And so can pursuing religion be a bad thing? Is that a, is that a bad pursuit for us? Well, I'll tell you for me, trying to find fulfillment in religion and specifically even for me in ministry, a religious endeavor, for me has been a constant struggle throughout my life. It's a good endeavor, and yet it has been the cause for sin and insecurity of all kinds. I even think back to my life growing up as a kid and into adulthood. I found a lot of gain in religion, but also a lot of disappointment. In high school, a good friend of mine, both of us started this Christian fellowship at our high school, a public high school that grew from 5 to 70 people within a few weeks. And we saw people come to Jesus, and it was a wonderful thing. A couple of years later, I traveled a lot for ministry to be able to go to different places and travel and do that. A few years after that, a few of us in Philly started an organization to reach young people with the gospel, and we gained some traction there. I pursued an education in, in theology, and I became a part of this church plant. I became a pastor. And in all of this, there has been a subtle draw to measure the meaning of my life with these religious endeavors. How well I'm doing. How people perceive me. And if there is any disappointment along the way, and there are many, there are many, all of a sudden, all of the meaning I thought it gave me just disappears. It leaves me. It, it vanishes. It fades. goes away. And so religion, even the best efforts and desires, can so quickly become the answer to find meaning without us even knowing it. Uh, that's, the, that's the subtlety of what religion does. And so what do we do? We do religion. We become religious. Right? We know how to map out the course. We conform to the list with, with consistency and with thoughtfulness and have an appearance of religion. But often without the heart of it. And that's the reality. We often do religion, but mindlessly and without our heart and passions a part of it. This was Israel. This was Israel. Uh, the people were circumcised. They went to the temple. They participated in the celebrations and the festivals. They gave of their resources and money. Everything a worshiper of God should do. But perhaps suddenly, their, their passion for God was exchanged for a passion for religious appearance. And God became a means to their end in finding a fulfilling life. But not much more than that. So religion became a means to an end. God became a means to an end to make life feel complete, to make some sense of this world. Uh, but that's all it was. And so it's no wonder when the preacher tells them to guard their steps in Ecclesiastes 5, when they go to the house of God, he tells them to guard their steps, to be careful. 
to not just speak their many words as if they're fulfilling some kind of requirement of religion with their words. The things that we do and the things that we say when we gather here, they can actually have a lot of depth and have a lot of meaning. But it can also easily be easily a pretentious display right, of what we conjure up in our minds of what religion is, whether we're aware of it or not. And I would say that any seeking we do of meaning in religion cannot be found in just doing things and saying words. Uh, this past week, I was watching this short film that was put out a few years ago. Um, and in this film, it sort of detip, depicts this fictional family getting ready for church on a Sunday morning. Right? And so it's taking you into the home of this of this family, the husband wakes up in the morning, the alarm clock annoying, and he's already grumpy and he's impatient. The wife is angry. She, she responds to his grumpiness and she's angry. Their one daughter spills milk on the floor. The other daughter can't pick what to wear. And so you, you feel anger and heat rising. They get in the car. They're running late. Tension's growing. The wife puts lipstick, and the husband cranks the brakes and goes all over her face. She gets angry some more. Harsh words are spoken. No one's happy. Right? It's, it's a bad experience in the car until they get to the parking lot. They get to the parking lot, and their frown flips. Right? The family is grinning ear to ear. Everyone's happy. Everyone's fine all of a sudden. And all of that anger that you saw a moment ago is suppressed. And the film closes with them sitting in the pew, all four of them, eyes closed, smiling, singing the doxology like they're little angels, like nothing happened like three hours ago. And that's how the film closes. And it gives you a picture of, okay, what was that? What was real? What, were they pretending that whole time? What did they do? How did that just change all of a sudden? And the point of that is not to make us feel guilt, but to, to be thoughtful about how are we entering in in a place like this? How are we approaching God? And the question that we ask is not just were they pretending, but are we ever pretending here? Do we seem the need to, to put on a facade or some kind of an act? The preacher is not content to allow our engagement with God to be a series of things that we do. And once we've done them, we've checked off the religious box. And so the preacher tells us that it is better to listen. It's better to listen. You've got a lot of words. It's better to listen. And why should we listen? Why should we listen? He says, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. You should listen because God, I am in heaven and you are on earth. So let your words be few. Don't speak. Just let your words be few, if anything. Uh, in the scriptures, there is this uh, distinction often made between the creator, the God of the universe, and those that he's created. So the creator and created. right? There's that distinction that's often made. There's a distance between that that is vast. It's a chasm. It's, it's humongous. And when you look back at Genesis in the garden, uh, the fellowship that Adam and Eve had was a space in which the, the God of heaven and the people on earth connected. 
There was a real communion there and a fellowship there. And all of their lives were meant to flow out of that communion because there was such harmony there and, and, and accord there. It was beautiful. When you look at the temple of God in the Old Testament, when you see passages of what the temple of God was, the tabernacle, what that was, this was also meant in a controlled way to bring these two worlds of, of heaven and earth together. There was a merging of that that was intended to, to give you a picture at least of, of, of what it looked like for God to dwell with man in a controlled space. But the preacher warns Israel that this divide that exists between God and man should be on your minds. It should not be something that you walk into or think about casually. This divide that exists between heaven and earth, God and man, there is a gap, and there is a divide that you cannot speak across. It's not something that you are able to bridge with your words or with your actions or with your religion. Instead, God is the one who speaks and to whom we must listen. He is the one who initiates but man, our words and our opinions and our actions, they can go on and on and on and we fill the silence with our noise. We feel distance from God. We feel that, that vast distance between us and God and we desperately want our words, our opinions, our actions and our religion to bring the resolve for that difference that we feel, that distance that we actually feel. As we've been in this book of Ecclesiastes, facing weighty matters of life, I think some of us may be wondering, we feel empty right now, right? We feel dry. We feel lost. Uh, how long is this going to last? Right? That may be a question that's come up on your mind. When is the resolve to this thing? Can we just finally get to the last chapter and be done with this? Because honestly, it feels like we need some water. We need some rest. How long will I be in this desert of vanity feeling like everything is pointless? I, I get to the end of a sermon and still I wonder, okay, what, what was the point of that? Because I'm going to hear something again next week and realize that too was pointless. I want to feel joy. I want to feel fulfillment. How much longer will I feel this sorrow? Or perhaps you're particularly in a time of life right now that's hit you hard. And the weight of what you're facing right now feels so unbearable. This is the last thing that you want to hear, that, that life is meaningless. And that you can't make any sense of it. And all you want is some water. And a place to rest your head and a place to rest. And it feels like it's not coming. I think, I think often, depending on your personality. I know for me, we would much rather want a formula to fix us, right? To fix what we feel, to just, to just get better. Just tell me what I need to do to get better. Uh, does two plus two equal four? If so, just, just tell me the formula and I'll do that. I just, I just want to get better. Just tell me that. The right sermon or the right discipline or the right seminar or the right conference or the right words. Just someone tell me that and that should do it. I was reading a book this past week of a man wrestling through the book of Ecclesiastes and realizing some of the messiness in trying to resolve life, right, when it feels lost and broken and, and fleeting. After venting to a friend, he says this, I think we are more committed to a system 
to a way of working the chaos into some order rather than entering into the world of chaos around us with trust and faith. He goes on to say, I have noticed after being a Christian for a little over 30 years that Christians are not a lot different from their so-called secular counterparts. Oh, we believe we are going to heaven, but we have just as many, if not more, egotists, arrogant know-it-alls, and thin-skinned surface rules that cover over the fact that most of us don't have the slightest idea how to deal with our teenage daughters or our money or our lonely spouses and the proverbial man in the moon. I'm sick, truly sick of what I've done to so many friends. When they struggled, I gave them a book or a series of steps to help them resolve the problem. I rarely ever listened to them. I rarely suffered with them. I answered their questions and held them accountable to manage life the way I assumed was right. And the same man would tell you he's not against spiritual disciplines or reading books. He's writing a book. So it's not that those things are bad. But I think what he's trying to get at is here is that the awfulness of life is just awful. I mean, it's awful. And it's okay to say that. Life is really hard. To hear that from someone who says they are Christian and not dismiss it is considered a lack of faith, but it's the process of it. This is the desert in which we grow. And Jesus in the New Testament actually agrees with this. Right? If, you, if you are familiar with Jesus and how he speaks about our religiosity, he would agree with us. He says, don't bring your eloquence or your lofty speech to me. Let's get to honesty, right? Let's stop telling me what you, are you think you're supposed to tell me. Let's, let's get to what you really feel. Let's get to the root of what you actually feel. One of the best parts about Ecclesiastes to me is that this book actually exists. It just, it exists and it is actually inspired by God. It doesn't try to put a religious veneer over the awfulness of life, but it wants you to look at it and sit there for a while. And as we've said before, it wants you to stare at it and sit there. And that's okay. And it's hard. And it's okay. And it's awful. And God's okay with that. He is okay with our groaning. And he is okay with our questions and with our fears and with our anxieties. Even when we say what we say is wrong. Even when we don't say right things. Even when the groanings of our hearts and the words that come out of our mouth are not right. He's okay with that. For example, when you look at Psalm 13, here's what David says. How long, O Lord, will you forget me? Are you going to forget me forever? That's what David says. And God does not come along to David and say, David, actually, I'm God. I don't forget anything. You've got it wrong. You are incorrect. Your theology is off. You're not being precise in what reality is. I really didn't forget you, and so we're going to omit this psalm from the scriptures. Try again. He doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. The truth is that God has never forgotten him. He didn't forget him when he was facing Goliath. He didn't forget him when he was faced with the temptation of Bathsheba and received forgiveness and grace. 
but he allows him to say that and to feel that way. And there's no one, there's not a single person immune to these feelings of, of lostness and heartache. You may not be there today. You may have been there in the past. You may be there in the future. But we're not immune to this feeling. You may have noticed that your pastors don't often have the answers to why your life is so painful or why life is hard. You know why? Because we have the same questions and we have the same struggles. And our hearts are often troubled and need to find water and rest. No one is immune to feelings of vanity and lostness. Just a few weeks ago, I met with a man uh, more than twice my age. Met with him just to, just to talk about life. And he didn't know that, you know, we were in the book of Ecclesiastes. He had no idea. And he's, he's a man who is accomplished. And for all reasons and purposes, he's a successful man. No reason to feel lost. And he has no idea that we're preaching through the book of Ecclesiastes. But when we sat down for lunch, you know, one of the first things that he told me was, as a 60-plus-year-old man, life feels really meaningless right now. And there's no point to any of it. It's all vanity. These are the words that he's saying to me. Because I'm thinking, you know what? 30 years down the line, I'm going to feel different. I'm going to get there, and maybe I'll have figured it out by then. And here I'm looking at this man, look at me and say, when you get to my age, you're going to think the same exact thing you're thinking right now. And it was sobering for me. And if, if I had not even wrestled through Ecclesiastes with us together over these past few weeks, I think a year ago, if he, if he said that to me, I would have responded with a lot more religion and responded with a lot more words trying to make him feel better with a good intention, but not in the way that God might respond to him. Uh, not in the way that God responds to me when I have my questions and my anxieties. Friends, there's room for us with God to feel this. God can see our acts of religion for what they are. He can see them and he doesn't need them. He doesn't need them. He knows we say things, we make vows, and that we will never follow through. That's why he says, come, watch your steps. You don't have to speak, just listen. Let your words be few. You know what? Just listen. Listen. And I want to shift our view to another scene for a moment. It's a scene of a place where God speaks. He speaks words that are good and true. Where his son Jesus Christ listens. I want to shift our eyes to the Gospel of Mark when Jesus is baptized, right? When he begins his public ministry, it says that at that moment when he came up out of the water, that the heavens tore open. The heavens tore open. There was a break in the skies. The heavens breaking into the earth, his world into ours. The Spirit of God, like a dove, descended on Jesus, and the Father speaks over his Son. You are my beloved son. In you I am well pleased. The Father speaks. Jesus listens. And then Mark says that Jesus is pushed. He's compelled. He's driven into the wilderness where now he is tempted by Satan. He's tempted by Satan for 40 days. Right? Given all kinds of temptations uh, to, to, to give up 
and to, and to give in. And he never, this whole time, stops listening to his father. Right? He never gives any room for the words of Satan to triumph over the words of his father. And he even speaks them back to Satan. Even to the point of the cross, Jesus never stops listening to his father. In Christ, the break between heaven and earth never happens. The break between God's world and our world never happens. He never stops listening to his father. He holds on to the, all of his promises of God. He holds on to them. Why? As one preacher put it, I suspect the father's words just kept ringing, kept ringing in Jesus' ears. You are my son. I am pleased in you. You are my son. I am pleased in you. We often speak a lot of words and can't hear the Father. And yet Jesus has. Jesus has listened to the Father, and because he listened all the way to the cross, he has bridged that great divide between heaven and earth, between God and us. And because of that, we can now speak to the Father through his Son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus becomes now the mediator that allows us to confess our hearts and to confess our worries and our anxieties and our lives that seem meaningless and pointless. Like we're in the desert and we have no water. This now gives us the opportunity to say to God through Jesus Christ, this is what I feel. And we get now in our stupid words, in our small words, an ear with God himself. We can bear our souls to God because Jesus bore our sins unto death. And that's what ha what's happened through the work of Christ. The preacher closes this passage in verse 7 with this. For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one that you must fear. So just for a moment, what is this fear that the preacher is telling us? Is it, is it pure dread? Is it pure fear to the point where we cannot stand before God? Uh, well, were it not for Christ, our souls should tremble with dread because we could not stand. But in Christ, the fear is different. Right? It's not just the fear that we will be struck down and, and be done. The fear is different in Christ. It's a fear trembling, sure, but filled with awe and reverence. It's one in which the words that were said over the Son are now said over us. Son, daughter, in you I am well pleased. It's one that is not cheapened, right, by the religious acts that we do. It's one that just because we come into church and say these things and sing these things and do the actions of religion, it's one that is not cheapened through those things. In light of this, God, it seems trivial to come with vain words and empty flattery instead of the open invitation for us to just come with all of our hurts and pains, to play religion and to not immerse ourselves in the grace of God this morning would be a great loss for us. To plunge our, our sins and our anxieties into the grace of God would be a great miss for us this morning. This fear is the kind of fear that is met with divine love and welcome. 
The one spoken of in 1 John 4, when it says, There is not fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been in love. It's the kind of fear that Flannery O'Connor desired. Not one that is driven by a fear of hell, but a fear of God and a love for him. A fear of God that allows us freedom to not fear everything else. Right? A fear of God that frees us from the fear of ourselves, from the fear of others, from the fear of work, from death, from complex and messy lives, from sufferings, from our reputation, from the hard and difficult questions of life that we can't always find answers to. That's the kind of fear that God intends for us, to fear him. I want to close with a story I heard this week and will be done. Christian author Eugene Patterson or Peterson once recounted a story when he was just five years old. He grew up on a farm and would watch this giant Norwegian man plowing a field and looking, standing by the barbed wire, thinking, boy, it'd be really cool to get on top of that John Deere tractor. Standing there gazing, him looking at this man plowing this field, one day this man, Leonard, stands up to young Pete and starts to gesture towards him wildly. And Peterson is terrified because he feels like he's been caught in a place he shouldn't be, looking at something he shouldn't look at. And he interrupts the gestures. He interprets those gestures as, boy, get out of here. Be gone. Leave. And so he runs home fearful. But then he encounters this man at church and he says, little Pete, why didn't you come to the field on Thursday and ride the tractor with me? Why didn't you come to me? And Peterson said, I didn't know I could have. I thought you were chasing me away. And the man says, I called you to come. Why did you leave? I didn't know that was what you were doing, is what he said. And one preacher comments on this story. When we think about God and approaching him, uh, we're so confused by his gestures. His words seem muddy and unclear sometimes and confusing. His directions, they scare us and seem to have such a gap between heaven and earth. We lean more in our own understanding and words and dreams and fears. And Peterson concludes the story this way. A few days after the disappointment at the edge of his field and the reprimand that he received from the man at church, I was back at the fence watching and hoping that I might get a second chance. The giant Norwegian saw me, stopped the tractor. He did it again. He made the sweeping uh, motions of invitation, and I thought, I've got to run through this barbed wire as fast as I can. And like a flash of light, I went to him. And he let me stand in front of him holding the steering wheel, plowing through the field, that long stretch, my smallness now absorbed into his largeness. Brothers and sisters, we are the sons and daughters of God, pulled into the larger story of the redemptive life that we have in Christ. And there are a lot of sorrows along the way. There are a lot of heartaches along the way. But God calls us now in Christ to approach him through Christ. He does not push us away, but he calls us as sons and daughters. We need not fill our lives with the pretense of religion and vain words, 
we can come even this morning boldly before God. Brothers and sisters, we are the sons and daughters of God pulled into the redemptive life of Christ. Our approach of God does not have to be marked by pretense or mere religion. And this morning, even if you do not know Christ, would you know that the life that you are welcomed into is not one filled with rote religion and marks of religion, but one that is full of life because of the life of Christ that we get to absorb our lives into. So this morning, we can say, yes, preacher, religion would be vanity if it were left left to us. It would be meaningless It can offer no real meaning in life under the sun. We would go on speaking and never listen. All would be vanity still. But preacher, the one from beyond the sun has come into this world and listened to the Father's words pronounced over him until his own death so that these words can be said over us. So preacher, religion is not vanity because what was separated between heaven and earth has now been united in Christ, and what was broken in religion is now restored in Jesus Christ. And if we said that, the preacher would say to us, Amen, Amen. That is exactly what I was hoping you would see. Let's pray. Our Lord, we we confess this morning that we are guilty of religion, and playing the part of trying to fill our lives with acts of morality and and religious acts that have nothing to do with you. And we, we miss this great God who's before us, who allows us to come to him, who through the work of Jesus Christ allows us to confess to him all of our burdens, all of our anxieties, This is a God who welcomes us despite us. And oh God, for that we are so grateful. And we ask for your forgiveness this day. Help us to come to you even now as we come before the table and as we come into worship with our hearts full of the love of Christ for us, with our hearts full of the knowledge of our adoption as sons and daughters of Christ. We pray, oh Lord, that you would help us to believe this now. Help us to find meaning not in the things that we do, but in the, in the one who has done a great work for us. We need help with this, O oh God, we pray. It's in Christ's name. Amen.